Support for IPR comes from Des Moines Metro Opera, whose 2024 season features The Barber of Seville, Zalame, Peleus and Melisande, and American Apollo, June 28th through July 21st. Tickets available now at DesMoinesMetroOpera.org. It's River to River from Iowa Public Radio News. I'm Ben Kiefer. This hour, we have the pleasure of spending the entire time with the 2022 World Food Prize laureate Cynthia Rosenzweig. She's senior research scientist and head of the Climate Impacts Group at NASA's Goddard Institute for Space Studies. We're going to spend this hour talking about her pioneering work in the modeling of the impact of climate change on food production here in the Midwest uh, and also worldwide. We should note that world, the World Food Prize is a sponsor of IPR. Cynthia Rosenzweig in our Des Moines studio, welcome to our program. Thank you, Ben. It's great to be here. And congratulations on this distinct honor in your area. It must uh, be a thrill. It is certainly a thrill. I'm so thrilled and honored to receive the World Food Prize this year. But beyond just me, it's really about the focus of and attention and growing recognition of the role of food in climate change. Mm -hmm. Wanted to also mention you're an adjunct senior research scientist at Columbia, the Columbia Climate School at uh, Columbia University and professor in the Department of Environmental Science at Barnard College. And uh, we want to reach out to our listeners, uh, as we have been, uh, Cynthia, on this program for weeks, months, years, raising awareness about all aspects of climate change and what action needs to be taken. And uh, this is a facet we haven't really focused on in this way before, so we're so so glad to have you. Uh, We want to reach out to our listeners. What questions do you have uh, for Cynthia about the challenges of the global food system facing um, climate change now and in the future. I want to, of course, have uh, other challenges to our <laughs> food production system around the world. The COVID pandemic, certainly uh, a challenge, as well as uh, the new conflicts, especially in Ukraine. one 780 9100 one Your question for Cynthia Rosenzweig. You could also email us, river to river at iowapublicradio.org. Cynthia, set a foundation, so to speak, please. Start by telling us a little bit more about your background and the scientific pursuits that have led to this prestigious award. I started out as a farmer. Uh, My husband and I moved to Italy uh, when we were pretty young, in our uh, early 20s, and we, um, we had a farm outside of Florence in Tuscany. And the, uh, the, our neighbors came and taught us how to um, raise tomatoes. We picked olives and grapes. We raised chickens and goats and pigs. Mm. And it was really there that I fell in love with agriculture. I had grown up in a suburb outside of New York City. Yeah. So, um, and then when we came back to the States, uh, we had another farm in, in the Hudson Valley. Um, and we there we raised um, we raised cattle, pigs, uh, the corn and alfalfa to feed them, um, and then um, vegetables, 
um, including cucumbers for pickles for a pickling company in the Bronx. <laughs> nice. So my background, my my roots are really right on the land and in 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 these farms. But um, then I started um, uh, having young children, and I decided, um, and we moved to uh, New York City, and I decided then I would start restart my education and go to go to ag school. So then I went to a two-year ag um, college on Long Island, I, uh, Rutgers University, the land grant of, New, of uh, New Jersey, and then I eventually got my PhD from UMass, University of Massachusetts. So, um, th- so uh, the, uh, the, the land grant there. But this is what happened, and I'll tell, the, I'll tell a, a short tale of, of how I got into climate change. Um, as when I was a graduate student at uh, Rutgers, um, uh, we got a call, a call, my professors got a call from Jim Hansen, who was the um, uh, director then of, um, of the Goddard Institute for Space Studies, which is part of NASA's Goddard Space Flight Center. And uh, they wanted someone who knew about agriculture. And so I lived in New York City at that time. And so uh, this was just perfect for me. So I came and started working at NASA, first with remote sensing uh, uh, um, images and, and um, uh, of, of agricultural crops. But then Jim Hansen, who is from Iowa, um, he at that time the institute is it still is it's the home of one of the global climate models that make the projections of increasing of how increasing uh, greenhouse gases affect the climate system. Is this AgMIP? This no, I'm going to get to AgMIP in a minute. No, this okay. is the climate part. So Jim, who was is from Iowa, asked this question. What do these early projections of climate change mean for agriculture? And the, this question came filtering down. I was just a lowly graduate student, <laughs> um, uh, you know, in an office with, that barely had a window. And I was, the, but I was the only person there, there because it's the the institute is full of uh, climate scientists. But I was the only agronomist there, and so I, I kind of rolled up my sleeves and I set up to be to start answering that question. And, and this would have been about what year? This was in the uh, early 80s, early mm-hmm. 1980s. Okay. Okay. And so I— Forty years ago, right? Yeah, yeah. So basically, um, I, I then have been answering Jim's question, what does climate change mean for agriculture and food for, for, the, for the ensuing 40 years? Okay. Let's get to connect that to AgMIP because yes. you found it in 2010. Uh, it goes by the a- a- acronym AgMIP, Agricultural Model Inter— Comparison and Improvement Project. Boy, I see why it has a <laughs> has <laughs> yes. an acronym. You are the founder and uh, are have been the whole time a principal investigator for this community of experts. How does that fit in? Yes. Well, so what I learned from working with the climate modelers at at GIS was the importance of bringing modelers together to um, utilize the models to both. Um, uh, uh, improve them, and then also to use them for projections. So what we did when we founded AgMIP was we brought 
crop and livestock and economic modelers, all modelers re- that work have models related to ag and food, and we brought them together. Uh, before we before we founded AgMIP, there had been studies about climate change, but they had been do- done with just one maybe one maybe one crop model maybe one or two climate model scenarios but you see really in order to increase the scientific rigor of the projections you need to have multi multiple models we call them multiple model ensembles because then by 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 uh, use, having the models all use the same protocols we're able to cancel out the biases of any one model. And so what AGMIP, one of the many things that AGMIP does is it makes projections with the global climate models of what climate change means for agriculture all over the world. Mm-hmm. Okay, if you've just joined us, uh, our guest this hour, Cynthia Rosenzweig, she is uh, live in our Des Moines studio, the 2022 World Food Prize Laureate, Senior Research Scientist and Head of the uh, climate Impacts Group at the uh, NASA's Goddard Institute for Space Studies. Join us with your questions, one 780 or email us, river to river at iowapublicradio.org. Now, I know yesterday evening, Cynthia, you gave a, a lecture at Iowa State University. I want to go over it that focused really on the Midwest and, and the ways that climate change are are currently impacting, will continue to impact our ag scene here in the Midwest. I want to get to that later, but I feel based on what you said, um, we're talking a lot about modeling. So most of us have no clue about how this works. You lead a scientific collaboration uh, globally that produced the methodology and data that's being used by decision makers around the world. Give us a sense of how modeling works. What are you actually doing? We are growing crops in the computer. Uh, that's, <laughs> right. uh, that's the simplest description of, our, of, of what a crop model is. It's a, what, it's a set of mathematical equations that are programmed, and the equations represent the processes of crop growth. So first of all, what are the inputs? The inputs are solar radiation from the sun, the mm-hmm. temperature, daily temperature, daily precipitation, uh, and then uh, and then we put in what are the characteristics characteristics of the soils um, that where we're going to be growing the crops in the this so you know in, uh, you know with this program. Um, and then we plant the seed and we know and we describe well how fast does the seed germinate how fast does the uh, um the crop move and how does it move from one growth stage to another um and then it actually day by day with the with the with those weather inputs it grows the crop in the computer moving through its growth stages to the final yield and and, and, and instead of a no. uh, a leafy corn stalk or a bean plant you have numbers data 
Exactly. So what we have is how much in so it's so these crop models are really good tools for experimenting. Now, a lot of colleagues and many that I saw, I saw wonderful colleagues that we've worked with over the years um, at Iowa State last night who do the field experiments. They they are growing the crops and they are recording um, the data of when when did the first leaf emerge, when did uh, when was leaf out, when was mm-hmm. um, when was uh, when when did grain filling start, and what was the final year. Yield. We use those field uh, data to calibrate the computer model, and then when we have it working well, we can do experiments in the computer simulations with the climate change projections of what climate change will be, and that it changes the temperature inputs, the precipitation inputs, and even the solar radiation uh, inputs, depending on whether the uh, whether it's supposed to get more or less cloudy. Mm-hmm. So that's basic. So then we take the crop models that we are testing and making sure that they do a good job in the current climate, and then we run the crop with the changed with the projections of the climate change, and that's uh- how we get the projections. I see. How yeah, climate change it's will affect. such an exciting area. I'm recalling a few years ago when I had the pleasure of um, doing some reporting from a, a planter uh, going across a field here in, in southern Iowa and knowing all the high tech, uh, the, the GPS location of you know how much moisture has this soil received uh, and, and uh, I guess inputs on fertilizer. So it seems to be approaching that, but you're doing it completely in in a model in 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 the computer and they are these models are how accurate now well they're getting they're getting more and more accurate all the time because the i in agmip stands not only for intercomparison but it stands for improvement so uh, and by the way we have modelers in agmip who utilize all those high tech inputs so uh, for our spatial modeling, so it's not we do it now not just at one site, but we do it for fields, we do it for regions, we do it for states, we do it for countries, and we do it for the globe. Mm-hmm. How far has this type of modeling come in the last few decades? I don't know if we need to go back to when you were a, a grad student, but that's probably quantum leaps. I have to imagine. It, we've you know. It, they, the models definitely have improved, and uh, they are improving all the time. But you know, when I when I think about the amount of investment that has gone into the climate models, the global climate models that makes the projections of climate change, we need we could use that for the ag models. We need a, a, to. And w- at the end of my talk last night, I called for a moonshot science to improve. The, not only the models, but the way we use the models and bringing together. So, so I've been just we've been talking then about just the crop modeling part, mm-hmm. but we have livestock models, we have pest models, we have the the economics, which is so important. Of course, how is climate change going to affect farmer livelihoods? So while while the models are in good shape, but if what we need now to do is scale up and use the models. Here's here's the really, really important, another really important and great thing about the models. We can experiment and say, oh, you know what? It's getting with this climate change projections, the scenario, we call them scenarios. 
this ag region needs to have more heat tolerant crop, more drought tolerant crop. Mm. We need to um, uh, change the irrigation system. We need to change the fertilization fertilizer regime. And what we can then do is test those, we call them adaptation packages, in the models and see what works the best. So you, they're really useful tools for not only projecting what will happen with climate change, but also how to develop solutions. Mm, fascinating. Uh, let's let's touch on a few of the points that you uh, mentioned, I understand, in your lecture last night at Iowa State University. Uh, one of the big points you wanted to make, and, and, you know, we've been tracking this in the couple of decades I've been doing this show, you know, attitudes, awareness uh, about climate change changing all the time. But, I mean, one of the points I understand you wanted to bring out in your talk was that climate change impacts are already happening here in the Midwest. Go into that. Sure. Yes. This, you know, when I started out, because, you know, I've been doing these, as you can see, to, just, you know, when, when, when we were discussing when I started and, and my career, I've been doing this for a long time. Um, and in the beginning, it was really more that climate change was something really sort of far in the future, you know, like decades out, you know, mm -hmm. decades, almost like we did a lot of projections, you know, emphasizing what would happen at the end of this century, right? But now what we are realizing as the decades have gone on, we realize that climate change is happening already and climate change impacts on ag and food are happening already. So, for example, and these are results from the National Climate Assessment of a few years ago, observed increases, this is observed, these are no longer projections, in humidity and precipitation have eroded soils, created favorable conditions for pests, and degraded the quality of stored grain. So these are some of the things that farmers And, and this is right, here, actually, in the mid, right yes, here in the Midwest. Yes. These mm -hmm. are, this is documented changes that are happening already. Mm -hmm. uh, when we talk about climate change, uh, of course, inevitably some politics wrapped up in this and, and debates about the climate change. Um, um, how do we know they are tied to... Uh, climate change is tied to, to man-made reasons, or does this matter in your line of work? I mean, we, we will get some, you know, some people, farmers or not, just saying, well, this could be just regular fluctuations in the Earth's climate. It's happened over the uh, millions of years of the Earth's existence, uh, could be happening now. Um, does that matter in your line of work? Um, that's that's a very interesting question. Um, you know, ag and food and farmers are so practical that— in a, in a way, the causes of the change are not as, as important. It, th what we do know is that the climate is changing. Risks are increasing for food production, food supply, the whole food system. Yeah. And in, really, what, what we learn from farmers is, okay, we're, we need to roll up our sleeves and get going on finding the solutions for these increasing risks. So in the in our area, it's less important uh, about the actual causation. Um, I, I, I bring this up, Cynthia, because last week on this program, we, we focused on smaller farmers and, mm -hmm. and climate change and so forth. But one of the farmers brought up such a point that I hadn't heard before that it was important for farmers to have a, 
um, well, an example from decades ago, the Dust Bowl, where that was definitely man-made, and you did have to have an intervention to get things back in order so we didn't have... You know, Texas and Oklahoma dust in our atmosphere up here in Iowa and Minnesota. Absolutely. And you know what, Ben? One of my very early peer-reviewed journal papers was comparing the climate effects of and the impacts of the Dust Bowl and the projections of climate change. And what we and so I so the this use of climate analogies we call that's what we call them is really important because yeah it can you know I know it can seem oh climate change you know it's this this you know big new thing that everybody's talking about but looking back to see what we what we can learn from extreme periods of of climate and how they affected our agriculture in this country and and other countries is really important because that we can learn from that. You know, even though the causation um, is different. Yeah, yeah. Uh, We have a couple minutes before we go to break. Perhaps we can squeeze in uh, an email question from Larry in El Cater. That's in the uh, northeast part of our state. I'm not sure how aware you are of our geography, but beautiful part of the state. Uh, Larry in El Cater asks uh, you to compare the carbon footprint of a vegetarian diet versus grass-fed meat versus grain-fed meat. Yes. Well, um, a few years ago, I led a group of international scientists um, uh, for the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, on climate change and the food system and food security. And um, that was one um, question that we looked at explicitly, and we have a great chart. It's called the, uh, in, right in the chapter, ex- ex- giving the studies of exactly the comparison of the greenhouse gas emissions from the different diets from um, uh uh, vegetarian from uh, meat eating, vegetarian, and down to uh, vegan, mm-hmm. and um, the numbers are um, uh, they're in gigatons of carbon. And by the way, what what the numbers are are um, I have about a minute minute left. Minute left. I'm gonna. I'm going fast. Okay. Um, they are um, they are if if the whole world changed. To, to be one of these diets. So it's not, it's like I a see. thought experiment, really. But anyway, it's eight gigatons of tar- carbon from the um, from a um, mixed diet all the way down to the vegan diet, which is on the order of less than one or one gigaton. So um, it's, uh, the, our, our dietary choices do, ha, ha, can have an effect on greenhouse gas emissions. Okay, we'll be back in just a moment with more from Cynthia Rosenzweig. She is the 2022 World Food Prize Laureate, Senior Research Scientist, Head of the Climate Impacts Group at NASA's Goddard Institute for Space Studies. And when we come back, we'll talk with Cynthia about, well, these projections, this this modeling of climate change into the future, how it's affecting food production here in the Midwest. There's a downward pressure on yields. When we come back, we'll ask Cynthia exactly what that means um, and why those yields would be declining uh, by 10, 20 percent in the coming years. Also, more from you, uh, emails or calls. 1-866-780-9100, 1-866-780-9100, or email us 
River to River at iowapublicradio.org. Back in just a moment with World Food Prize laureate Cynthia Rosenzweig. I'm Ben Kiefer. It's River to River. Support for IPR comes from Des Moines Metro Opera, whose 2024 season features The Barber of Seville, Zalame, Peleus and Melisande, and American Apollo, June 28th through July 21st. Tickets available now at Des Moines Metro Opera.org. I'm Rachel Martin. You probably know how interview podcasts with famous people usually go. There's a host, a guest, and a light Q&A. But on Wildcard, we have ripped up the typical script. It's a new podcast from NPR where I invite actors, artists, and comedians to play a game using a special deck of cards to talk about some of life's biggest questions. Listen to Wildcard wherever you get your podcasts. Only from NPR. And we're back with more of River to River from Iowa Public Radio News. I'm Ben Kiefer. This hour, we're spending with Cynthia Rosenzweig. She is the 2022 World Food Prize Laureate, Senior Research Scientist and Head of the Climate Impacts Group at NASA's Goddard Institute for Space Studies. Really fascinating work she's been doing, um, modeling the impact of climate change on food production worldwide. And uh, we want to... Talk a little bit more about some of the themes, uh, information she delivered yesterday evening at the Norman Borlaug Lecture on the campus of Iowa State University. The title of her talk, Moonshot Science for Climate Change and Food. And let's let's follow up, uh, Cynthia, because in the first half hour, we, you know, you talked about how climate change impacts are already happening. Observe. These are real things, not just projections. Uh, humidity. Uh, warm uh, humidity, precipitation, eroding soils, uh, the favorable, more favorable conditions for pests, uh, degrading the quality of stored grain, for instance. Let's move down into what, down the chain to, to, to what your data says about yields, projected yields based on these climate changes. Let's work, let's uh, look first uh, globally. Uh, okay. Because we we have a team of uh, twelve uh, uh, global gridded crop modelers. There, those that, that team is from all over the world, and they, with the latest uh, climate change projections, uh, they did a study, uh, a global study of what this means, um, what the what the latest climate projections mean for maize and wheat. Pro- wheat um, crops uh, all all over the world. And their results showed several important things. First, the, uh, it, the effects vary by crop. So maize is much more affected globally than wheat. This mm-hmm. has to do with uh, their photosynthetic pathway, C3 or C4, um, and uh, the C- maize as a C4 crop doesn't respond to high CO2, which is a positive thing for crops, but wheat is. Just to make uh, sure, maize, sure. Is, maize is an international term for what oh. we say is corn. <laughs> yes, right. absolutely. For corn. those who don't know, right. Okay. <laughs> absolutely, corn. Um, so, but in, uh, but in both crops, what we see is when we look in the uh, lower latitudes um, and in the tropics, the semi-arid tropics, that's where the yields are declines are the greatest. And that's where the developing countries are located. So this work 
follows up and finds the similar results that we have found in our global studies from the beginning, that, that the developing countries with the smallholder farmers, and you said you had mm -hmm. um, a show on um, on small smallholder farmers um, re last week, I guess. Um, they are the ones, it, it, particularly in the developing countries, that are um, most vulnerable to climate change. Yeah. Okay, so now is a good time perhaps to focus on, on the Midwest and sure. recognizing here, too, that in the Midwest we have these fabulous growing conditions and soil and so forth, but a lot of our crops are not even grown for food. <laughs> Most of our corn, I believe, the majority goes towards ethanol, right? So I don't know if that figures into the equation, but talk, talk about the, the, the Midwest specifically sure. and the yields. In the Midwest, what we see with climate change is a downward pressure on yields. Uh, um, and this is on both uh, corn and soybeans, the two main crops here. Um, the changes in precipitation, coupled with rising extreme temperatures, even before mid-century, will reduce Midwest agricultural productivity to the levels of the 1980s, unless we we really, working with Iowa State and other experts, come come forward with major technological advances. So we have to. It's it's almost a kind of a race, Ben, between mm -hmm. this you know tremendous increase increasing productivity that has been seen in the Midwest um, low these these past uh, decades, uh, and so those that really is an upward pressure on the uh, up, up, upward rise in the yields, but the climate change is a downward pressure. So what we're really working on is seeing really when do those two trends cross and what can we, what can we do to help develop the resilience heat and drought tolerant tolerant crops um, management irrigation what's happening with the drainage um, so that we so that the midwest can really withstand and adapt to and be resilient to these changes are there places, perhaps in the U.S., regions that are are good models for what we should look for in the Midwest in the future? For instance, I don't know, Missouri, Georgia. I mean, Missouri is part of the Midwest, too. But is there a region that we can say, that's pretty much what Iowa will be like in the future? Sure. Um, yeah, again, that we that's another kind of climate analogy that, that we do look at. And uh, so you definitely have to go down to in, down in the southern parts. Um of the country um, to get an analogy of the warmer um, uh, area that it, it would be, um, that, would, that, that Iowa will be like. But I, I want to also talk about precipitation yep. uh, so, or rainfall, um, but, and of course, snowfall in the winter. Um, a, a lot of the climate models are showing um, in the mid and high latitudes, where in the mid latitudes where Iowa is located, increases in precipitation. And this, I think, is not only the high temperatures that we've been talking about as an increasing risk, but really the increasing precipitation. And it's not only just the mean of it, you know, like oh, to the total per year, but also increases in the heavy downbursts, the heavy downpours. And that is not good for crops because of the potential for lodging and also water logging and flooding. Yeah. So 
another you, this and this there there are trends already for uh, the uh, that the heavy downpour ta- downpours are already increasing. Mm-hmm. Um, related to that, Dirk, one of our listeners, sent in an email. He's uh, focused on water as well. Cynthia, will we need more water for crop irrigation as things get hotter? And if so, Dirk asks, can we use our polluted rivers and lakes for this, or will we need to pay to clean the water first? Uh, I'm sure you're aware Iowa has some of the most compromised waterways in the nation. Uh, Higher temperatures bring greater evapotranspiration, and therefore there is a uh, an opposing tendency to the potential for increasing precip and heavy downpours at the same time as the demand for water in the atmosphere in the air is increasing so uh there and depending where you are it's variable as we know i've been talking to the iowa corn growers association um uh, since i've been here this week and one of the things they were saying is like you know it different farms even n- nearby near by farms can experience different thunderstorms, different rains, mm-hmm. um, uh, different conditions. So, um, so nothing that we're saying is like is happening to every single farm and farmer. Um, right. But we definitely have the potential for uh, uh, in uh, uh, more both more droughts and more floods. And so, yes, we may have to explore. Uh, what uh, expanding water sources, and uh, while um, and and attend to the water quality because the the water quality with the higher temperatures and the higher evaporation also that concentrates the pollutants in the water. So mm. we will be ha- we will have to be careful. In answer to the listener's question, we are going to be have to be careful about the water quality issues as well. Spending the final 10 minutes or so in this live conversation with Cynthia Rosenzweig. She is the 2022 World Food Prize Laureate, Senior Research Scientist and Head of the Climate Impacts Group at NASA's Goddard Institute for Space Studies, stopping by our Des Moines studio uh, today. Uh, Let's get to some solutions in the final 10 minutes or so. what what are we what are we seeing there? Because as I mentioned, you know we've talked with farmers about climate change mm-hmm. on past shows. Some of these farmers are really at the cutting edge. Uh, sustainable ag, or other words, you know, climate smart solutions. What are you pitching out there as the solutions we need to adopt quickly? Uh- Here's uh, before we get to specifics, uh, we need uh, uh, adaptation. What we call adaptation packages. Um, you, there's no silver bullet. That's everybody do this one thing, and then we're all you know we're going to really be able to respond to climate change. Um, but the there are um, there are in these adaptation packages. Um, there are there are lots of things that farmers can do. But just want to highlight this. Um, uh, this uh, from a solution uh, that Iowa State has been developing, and maybe you've 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 brought this uh, forward in your program. Um, it's called the Strips Program, which has a very long name: Science-Based Trials of Row Crops Integrated with Prairie Strips. <laughs> and this is uh, it's a kind of um, almost like a new uh, like uh, contour 
um, strip farming, but for but for but for the twenty first century, and they because of bringing the prairie grasses in between cropping areas, this can reduce sediment loss, help with nitrogen, it can help with water holding capacity for these heavy downpours. So there are there are lots of management. Uh, uh, practices like this for climate smart agriculture. And I know that Iowa is really one of the leaders in developing these kinds of integrated programs. Evidently, that's now, that STRIPS program is now in 14 states that went uh, from the time it was um, developed and tested at Iowa State. Mm-hmm. Now, I understand that, you know, current climate smart farming practices, that just as you, such as you described, they're voluntary in Iowa and other states, perhaps. Do they need to be, in your opinion, be made mandatory? Do we need other encouragements? We've got to move faster, don't we? We definitely need to move faster. That is absolutely true. Um, the window really is closing for us to uh, really get get ready and, and address climate change. Um, but at the same time, you know, a lot of regulations, I think, also don't work. I think incentives... They're just, they're just like off-putting. Why don't they work? Farmers yeah. don't like to be told what to do. Exactly. They want, to, they want they, to arrive at it by themselves, right? Exactly. Absolutely. And so um, we work with uh, policy experts because, you know, we're the crop modelers, basically. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? Um, so, but what would we then went out and, and, and formed a group with, with policy experts, right? And so they're into things like... Um, um, you know, incentives. Um, also, you know, making sure that the insurance programs are really good um, for these increasing risks. Um, um, you know, incentives for storing carbon in the soil. Um, you know, this this um, strips program. You know, is helping with the biodiversity because that that helps also with um, the genetic resilience to climate change. So, well, let's so say that's I'm, really let's what say, I think we need to. That's really more the approach I think that we need. Let's say, Cynthia, I'm a farmer. I'm I'm really just interested to be frank in the bottom line. Mm-hmm. What are you going to say? Everything. If look, farming is not only what happens with the climate, with the crops. It's what happens to the farmers' livelihoods. Everything, every solution has to make sense, be that triple win, sustainable, and um, uh, and 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 make sure that it is sustainable livelihoods for the farmer. And that's what climate smart uh, farming really is. It has three pillars. One is reduction of greenhouse gases. The other is development of climate resilience. Uh, and the third is livelihood, farmer livelihood. And it's only when we work on, when the solutions work on all three, that we're really going to be able to tackle climate change. Yeah, it's politically divisive, climate change, just that phrase, those two words. To, to what degree are the solutions you're talking about, in your in your view, politically realistic? Or, or uh, Talk about that aspect. You, you have to get people to uh, adopt these things, and if... And if, if politically it's just not part of your tribe's <laughs> uh, thinking, you're going to steer away from it, aren't you? Well, the, what the, we work with we work with farming groups and countries all over the world, and really the way we do it is we we work with uh, we we develop the solutions, we work with the teams in country or in location in state, mm-hmm. and we we you know it's, I think there's there's really great power in. Um, 
not being helicoptering in and saying you have to do this, you have to do that, but it's really sharing what we know, listening, a lot of listening to farmers. Mm. What is What are the challenges that you're facing and how can we help? That's how we have to really address it. And, and what are you hearing in your visit to the Midwest, your visits to the Midwest, what you, attitudes are you hearing from our farmers, our ag community, and how have those attitudes changed over the years? That you've I'm been listening? hearing this week, um, sharing with, you know, we had wonderful interactions with students with the World Food Prize, global, local and global youth institutes, absolutely wonderful. And some of them, some of the Midwestern students said, well, you know, um, a family member was was you know really really a climate change skeptic, but now with what's when you see what's going on around the world in Pakistan, Nigeria is the the latest one that they're saying, hmm, you know maybe I'm now maybe there is something to it. So I think you know change of attitudes take time, but I am experienced being experiencing being here this week that attitudes are changing. I hear the excitement in your voice, Cynthia. Yes. It's, it's, it is. It's really important because we we do need to act together and and concertedly and we and at 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 large scales to be able to really confront these challenges of climate change. What do you see as the major obstacles to meeting these challenges? Adopting these solutions quickly enough. We were talking about this um, with uh, President uh, Wendy Winterstein of Iowa State last night. She asked that same question. What are the barriers and what do we need? Um, I think what the, the real, you see, a lot, a lot of the solutions we have already, what we have to do is really work together. It, it's all in collaboration. Um, and by, and, and we have to build bigger collaborations so that we can scale up and out um, the the solutions. And I think if if the scientists and the, the farmers farmers groups, um, it, we had great conversation with the Iowa corn growers yesterday, um, coming together, really bringing the science together with the actual actors, right? With so that. It brings the science and the action much closer together faster. That's mm -hmm. what we have to do. Mm -hmm. This World Food Prize comes with a $250,000 uh, cash uh, prize. Uh, May I ask, what are your plans for that money? Yes, I'm. Um, thank you for asking. This is you know, one of the frequently asked questions. Um, it's so thrilling to to receive an award like that. So I'm affiliated not only with NASA but also with the with the with Columbia University, and they, I believe, were the first university in the country to create a climate school. And it's that's what is that? It is. It's like a medical school at a university, but it's all around climate. Mm. And one of their initiatives is is around healthy and sustainable food. And uh, I'm I'm going to be donating the funds uh, for uh, to, for AgMIP uh, to hold global conferences at the Columbia Climate School, bringing science and action together. Mm -hmm. I wanted to address, you know, back to the attitudes, especially especially the attitudes of younger people, because uh, you and I, um, I certainly have, and listeners certainly have, 
some of the gloomiest doomsayers out there are, unfortunately, some of our youngest people who we need to be energized and excited about overcoming uh, the, this, these generational challenges of climate change. What do you say to the, the real doomsayers? And I know you, you must have run into them, even young people, that, uh, that, who say, you know, the game's up. Oh, uh, I know. Not it, much it, we can do. It's, it's disheartening, isn't it? And, you know, we had a meeting with the other, other laureates, um, uh, this distinguished group of, of, of uh, scholars and activists who have received the World Food Prize uh, in previous years. And we talked about this morning that very, very topic about what, what we need to do is show young people that there is hope. And really, you see, there are the solutions. I have to tell you, I and I, the fellow laureates, we, we meet with groups all around the world. And there are, I mean, there are myriads, hundreds, even thousands of groups that are working on all different aspects of climate change. And of course, what, what we're caring about here is, is food. So by, I, I, I just, I have to, I have to feel optimistic. I mean, I, feel, I have to feel optimistic because of interacting with these groups. So what we want to do is really share with the, with the youth and this, the wonderful programs that the World Food Prize do, their, their local and global food institutes, um, really share with them the, the, that what, what that hope really consists of, that there are the solutions, people are acting, people are acting all over the, all over the world, and they can be part of the solution. Okay, which brings me perfectly to the last question. In the final minute we have here, Cynthia, whether you're involved in agriculture or not, or at ISU or not, what can you as an individual, young, middle-aged, old, do right now? Absolutely right now in your own life, see where you, first of all, um, uh, contribute to greenhouse gas emissions and decide to uh, walk or bike rather than r jump in your car every single time. Um, in Think about food choices if that works for you, but it's absolutely uh, individual. Um, encourage um, uh, uh uh, your uh, local farmers and uh, everyone's in Iowa, I think, is connected to farmers um, to find out about what's going on with climate change. Be part of the solution. And it's very important because if as, as individuals take even just one action, it's a signal to your community, your friends and family to uh, to act on climate change as well. It's been wonderful to spend the hour with you. Cynthia Rosenzweig, thank you very much. Thank you, Ben, and uh, thank you for having me on River to River. Take care. The 2022 World Food Prize laureate, Cynthia Rosenzweig. I'm Rachel Martin. You probably know how interview podcasts with famous people usually go. There's a host, a guest, and a light Q&A. But on Wildcard, we have ripped up the typical script. It's a new podcast from NPR where I invite actors, artists, and comedians to play a game using a special deck of cards to talk about some of life's biggest questions. Listen to Wildcard wherever you get your podcasts, only from NPR. I'm Ben Kiefer. Thanks for joining us. 